open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, um, that can be found on page 961. And I'll be reading 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 20. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. First Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You can be seated as we pray. Father, In this room this morning, there's a lot of different emotions, but there's a a large amount of joy and excitement as we celebrate the greatness of Christ's resurrection. But now we want to pause and just consider what you have said and consider what your word says. So give us your mind, give us your spirit so that we can really grasp what you've said here And open our hearts, Father, we collectively say, we know we need to hear from God, so we open our hearts to hear from you. Help your Spirit, or we ask that your Spirit would work in us to help us to see, to hear, to listen, and have faith to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something inherently assuring and comforting about Christianity. The idea that this this broken world that we live in now is just a precursor to prepare us for an eternal and perfect world. That, That there is a powerful God who is taking the shattered pieces of this life or that tragedy and working them together For something good. That my very nature can be changed. Something that's proud. And if I'm honest, in its deepest parts, wicked. Can be transformed into something that is humble. And loving what's good. And most importantly, I who've, in my heart, rejected God's ways, can be made right. My, my relationship 
with the, the creator of the world can be restored. I can be accepted by God himself. Yeah, all that is very assuring and comforting. It's, it's good for the psyche, right? can change your whole outlook. But is it true? Perhaps it's a bit too good to be true. It feels like what Plato called a noble lie. A lie everyone should believe because it's good for society. I mean, for all its merits, Christianity just seems a bit too naive. The invention of people trying to make meaning out of a life that seems meaningless. Part of us wants to believe it all. But we feel so much of it is easily explained away. Right? Christians talk about the power of prayer. But could it be that the power of prayer is not due to the effects it has on God, but rather it has the effect it has on the individual who's doing the praying? I mean, I mean, that feeling that Christians have of answered prayer, might it be better understood as some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy? Which, of course, is aided by the hindsight we have when we have a keen desire to see that there is a God actually acting on our behalf. Or you hear about Christians, you hear Christians talk about these moving spiritual experiences they have that they claim are a result of the Holy Spirit. But how different are those experiences from what other people have with other religions or even at a rock concert or a gripping movie? And what about all those miracles described in the Bible? It seems pretty obvious that they're the same kinds of legends that develop around people, develop over time around people who are famous. You know, you had Robin Hood's masterful disguises and his perfect shot. Davy Crackett killing a bear when he was only three. King Arthur extracting the sword of destiny from its place in the stone. Now at this point in the sermon, you're thinking there's either a catch or there's going to be the worst Easter sermon you've ever heard. (laughs) Well, the former is true, there's a catch, and I hope the latter isn't true. But it's not as much of a catch as you'd think. You see, the questions that I asked are questions that I myself grapple with at times. They're not just rhetorical questions. These are honest questions. I remember being a young man. I'm a night owl, so I couldn't sleep at night even as a kid. So I was lying in bed, and uh, I was thinking to myself, I don't want to believe Christianity just because it's what I've grown up with. I want to know what's true. I want to know what God has really said. And so if it's not Christianity, I don't want to follow that. I want to know what's true. 
I remember a few years later hearing a song for the first time that contained these lyrics. Maybe this is all just a game. Our friends and our families all play too. Harness the young and give some comfort to the old. And it struck a chord with me. That was a question I had. You see, naturally, the way I'm wired, I'm a skeptic. If if you can't prove it to me through hard, fast logic, I'm naturally inclined to doubt it. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I'm not saying that's a virtue. And many times for me, that's a weakness. But it is my natural disposition. And I think it was also, as best we can tell, the natural disposition of a man named Saul. Now, Saul was born a Roman citizen. And if you know much about the Roman Empire, in those days, they were the rationalists. Yes, they had their mythology and things like that. But they were committed to their logic and their uh, specific way of doing things and testing things based on truth and honor. And this Roman citizen was also a Jew, and as a Jew, he was steeped in a certain school of Judaism called Phariseeism. He was raised as a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a little bit more spiritually minded than, say, the Sadducees. They did believe that there was a resurrection, that the body didn't just die and that was it. There was something that came after. But they had built this really thorough, rigid theological system that was airtight. And so somebody who had kind of that intensely logical mind would thrive in the Pharisaical system. And so this Saul, a Roman citizen, a Pharisee raised in the best school of the Pharisees, comes to hear these loony fellow Jews start talking about a man they followed named Jesus who died and was resurrected. And he goes, oh my goodness, the Jews already got a bad enough name as it is, and now we got these loonies going around talking about how some guy's risen from the dead? We got to put a stop to it. And so with great zeal, he joined the movement to have them put in jail or even have some of them killed. He felt this movement needed to be stomped out. And listen to his own words from Acts chapter 26. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known me for a long time. If they're willing to testify, they'll tell you that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And then he goes on to say, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
Now, why have I opened up the sermon like this? It's because the words I read at the very outset from 1 Corinthians were written by this Saul, who later became known as Paul. And I think this backdrop that I've set helps us hear better what Paul is saying. So I begin with these questions of a skeptic. I talk about my own honest admission that some of these can be my own questions. And I compare my background a bit to Saul's own background. With those things in mind then, let me just read a few of the verses that I read at the outset and see if you can hear them with greater clarity what Paul is on about. And Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote these things. Just listen to it. I'm just going to read a couple of the verses I read. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Or, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And finally, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. For Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so this is God's word through Paul, for Paul, the whole of Christianity rises and falls on whether or not Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. We talked about Plato's noble lie. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this, li- in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if this is just a, con- in- a convenient lie that helps us have hope in this life, but really doesn't mean anything, we're to be pitied. I, I want to press this po- point a little further. Do you find hope in prayer? If Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, that's pitiable, he's saying. Do you find hope in this life and the way God's moved in your life? If Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, then that's pitiable. Do we find hope in God's power over nature, even to do the miraculous. If Christ did not, in fact, rise from the dead, it's pitiable. For Paul, there is no option to have this kind of benign Christianity that denies the the reality of the resurrection, but tries to get all the benefits that can be there It's Jesus rose from the dead or we are all to be laughed at. Paul is no gullible pushover. He is an honest truth seeker. And he calls it like it is. If Jesus didn't ride, it's all a grand charade. A giant lie. 
And it's all, he says, all in vain. But, we have to allow for the fact that the alternative is also true. That is, if Christ did rise from the grave, then all of it is true. If Jesus actually rose up, He rose up from the dead, never to die again. If that actually happened, then God is involved in this world and the brokenness of this world is fixed because of what God's doing. If Jesus rose up from the dead, then it's true that when we pray, we're not just talking to ourselves. We're talking to a God who is involved in our lives and working. And when we look back on our day and see ways that God was active, we can have confidence that that was the God that that created the world because we know Jesus rose from the dead. When we read the Bible and we hear miracles, they can make sense to us. God can do those things if He can raise up a man from the dead. You see, it all hangs on whether Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. The story that is too good to be true can, in fact, be true. If Jesus rose from the dead, it must be true. And that's exactly where Paul goes. Look at verse 20. I'll look at it too. But if in Christ, sorry, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I want to pause there for a second. The discussion going on in Corinth is in a church like this, there was a group of people who actually believed there was no resurrection. That once we die, that's it, or our, our souls might stay alive, but our bodies don't rise, is kind of what they were thinking. Our bodies just go into the ground. Now, they might have had the same kind of rationalist thing. It just doesn't, our bodies, I mean, they go in the grave. We've seen bodies that are decayed and stuff like that. How can they actually rise from the dead? Let's just kind of sweep that teaching of Christianity under the rug. And he's going, no, 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 that kind of anti, anti-spirituality is all wrong because you know what? There's something profound you have to consider. If you're going to start sweeping that under the rug, you've got to grapple with, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? So that's what he's dealing with. That's the kind of backdrop. But now he gets honed in on the resurrection. And he's adamant. He insists, Jesus did rise. We're going to Return to that point later. But immediately, right after insisting he he did rise, he goes on to state the first major implication of the fact that Jesus did rise. Look at verses 21 and 22. He writes, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now what he's saying is an implication of the resurrection, something that's true if the resurrection's true, is that death itself has been defeated. And he's not saying it in some sort of generic way, death is dead. It's rooted in the rich and profound story of the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures say some really compelling things about why our world is the way it is. 
all of us who are here, you can't read the newspapers, you can't look in your own heart, you can't look at some of the fractured relationships you've had in the past, you can't look at some of the pain that people around you are going through and not say, this world's broken. It's one of the great questions all of us are trying to figure out the answer to, right? How do we make sense of such a broken world around us? The Bible gives a really compelling answer. It says that God created the world very good. But then, mankind whom he created rebelled against him and said, you know what, we reject your good rule. And what we're experiencing now is the resultant discord all stems from the fractured relationship of us as God's people and the God who created us. You see, it tells us that the brokenness of this world is an overall byproduct of mankind in a fractured relationship with the God who made us. This idea shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We see it all over the place. You walk into a restaurant where the employees are not on good terms with the owner of the restaurant, and you can feel it right away. Things aren't right there, or any, you know, any place of employment. You look at it in a family. you got the parents and the kids at odds with one another. It's a messed up home. It's not going to be peaceful. Things aren't going to be right. I think of uh, the nation of Myanmar or Burma. They had a leader, Aung San. I don't, I'm not an expert in Burmese history, but from what I've heard, he was a good man. And he led their, their, uh, the movement and the war for their independence. And just as they were gaining independence, a military coup decided to assassinate him and fill the void with their own power and terror. So they reject this good man. And ever since then, the, the country has been in turmoil. His daughter, Aung San Suu Kyi, rose up and became a voice for peace. And what do they do to her? They shut her up, put her in house arrest. And again, it's a country that its people have just experienced one pain after another. Why? Because they reject these good leaders. Not the people, but the military. You see, the devastation in that country was a result, result of the fractured relationship between the good leaders it had and the military coup that overthrew them. It's all over. And that's, that's the explanation that the Bible gives for why the world is the way it is. So, Man rebels against God. That's sin. There's sin in the world. The sin comes, and as the sin spreads, it creates disorder. And part of the disorder, the Bible says, is the death we experience in this world. In fact, Jesus said to Adam before he rebelled, if you rebel against me in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Death is going to come. So it says sin spreads and death spreads to everybody the reason we all die and the reason our bodies all age, the reason we have disease and sickness in this world is all ultimately tied to this rebellion against God. That's the story the Old Testament tells. And so, 
if God comes down, takes the form of a man in Jesus, and deals with the sin, the fractured relationship with God, which is what Jesus did on the cross, he was taking the penalty for that on himself. If he can actually deal with that and heal the relationship between mankind and God, then all the brokenness in this world, the death in this world, can be defeated. That's why Easter is the point we celebrate, because it proves that Jesus actually did something on the cross. You know, you can say, I'm dying for the sins of the world. You can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You probably can't make the world go dark, but, you know, you can say those things. But if you haven't actually done anything, you're just going to stay dead. But if you actually have dealt with the sin of the world, then of necessity, according to the Bible, how it explains this world, you will be able to rise up from the dead because you've conquered the power of death. That, look at, look uh, in chapter 15 at verse 56. It says, all this has been building up about how death is the last enemy, God's going to defeat death. But then verse 56, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Do you see it links death and sin? So if death is defeated, it means that sin has been defeated too. Do you see the implications of the resurrection? This lilting world has been righted. The fractured soul of the created order has been healed. Sin and death are not the ultimate victors. I know there are some today who feel the sting of death. Recent losses or even the prospect down the road of a loss grips your heart and it hurts. And you know there's there's something not right about all this. Paul says, because of the resurrection, death will ultimately be defeated. The world that Jesus ushers in will have no no more death, no more disease, no more sickness. Our bodies won't age. Look what he says in verse 25. For he must reign, Jesus must reign, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, Jesus, first implication of the resurrection is that death and sin are defeated. Now this is also why it's so important to embrace Christ and follow Him. Because, as, as you can tell, 
Jesus hasn't ushered in the fullness of that victory yet. He's going to come again, and he's going to set up a kingdom that's eternal, that doesn't have any of that death and sin in it. But when he does, only those who have put their faith in Christ and accepted his forgiveness on their behalf are able to enter into that kingdom. And the Bible says all those who don't embrace that path will be put in a place that's all the wickedness and evil of this world with none of the goodness that God brings. A place that's, it says it's, I mean, the language the Bible uses is just of intense terror because it's so dark and horrible there. So I talk about what Jesus did, defeating sin and death. That is a gift that's offered to those who embrace Christ and follow Christ and say, yes, I believe. I believe what he's done and I'm following him as my king. Now that is all if, right? If Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And it, it's, I think, the most significant implication of Jesus actually rising from the dead. But it's not where Paul ends. I want you to look at the end of chapter 15. Paul's just, just built one of the most robust and theologically rich explanations of the resurrection of Jesus. And he's talked about our ultimate vindication later in the chapter, which we're not getting into. But then in verse 58, at the end of his argument, he has this word, therefore. So he's, just about, he's about to unpack for us the implications of everything he said about the resurrection. What's this big implication of all his resurrection theo- theology going to be? Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The implication? Our labor's not in vain. If Jesus did rise, then our lives have purpose. We can, we can give ourselves to the work of the Lord and it can have eternal fruit. If Jesus did rise, what you are going through right now, no matter how awful, where you are at this stage in life, no matter what it is, can, be, can prove to be of eternal worth. Yes, your life. Whoa, whoa, whoa hold on a second, Pastor. The Bible isn't talking about me. Paul's writing to a bunch of first first century Christians, some of these great saints, and he's saying their life can count for eternity. You got to know my family's a mess. My life's out of control. I'm too weak and old to do anything of worth. I've made such a mess of things. He can't mean that my labor isn't in vain. No. Paul wasn't writing to the Bereans or the Philippians. He was writing to the Corinthians. Now, the Corinthians, they were pretty bad. I mean, one of the people in their church was regularly sleeping with his mother-in-law, or his stepmother. And he was bragging about it in the church, and the church all thought it was cool. They were cool with it. This is a Christian church. Paul talks about how petty they are. They're in these little cliques that are at war with one another. 
And they're always looking out for their own interests, not even caring about each other. There's no brotherly love in the midst. In fact, Paul talks about their communion services. You know, communion service is like the most special time we come together. He's like, oh my goodness, it's not only not any benefit to you, it's detrimental to you. That's how bad they are. And yet, because of the resurrection, if they give themselves to the work of the Lord, the Corinthians, the Corinthians are not laboring in vain. That means no matter where you're at, no matter what your past, no matter how weak or incompetent you feel, because of the resurrection, what you're going through, if, if you walk in a way that's steadfast and movable, bounding in the Lord, bounding in the work of the Lord, it's not in vain. Again, that is if Jesus did rise from the dead. So, just to summarize so far, Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all of Christianity is for nothing. It's all in vain. Now he says he did rise from the dead, and one of the implications means death and sin are no more. The brokenness of this world has been dealt a fatal blow. Jesus will triumph. He will usher in his kingdom. And... In the meantime, until he does that, your labor for him is not in vain. If Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus did rise from the dead. Skeptic Paul was convinced. And he was convinced by three converging reasons, which he lays out in verses 3 to 8. So I want to I look at them in reverse order of the order he gives them in. The first reason that compelled him and that he's saying should compel everyone to believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead is there in verse 8. He's talking about Jesus. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born... He appeared, Jesus appeared also to me. So this was back when Paul was still Saul and he was bent on destroying and stopping out those who believed in the resurrection. Now this Saul who wanted to destroy these fools who are making Jews look stupid becomes Paul where he's willing to die and to give his whole life and to suffer horrible things to make known that Jesus really did rise from the dead. What changed in him? The starting point for the change in him was when he was on a journey to one of the towns where he had a letter to persecute the Christians there. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus personally made a resurrection appearance to Paul. And it was that appearance that was the first thing that kind of made Paul go, maybe this actually happened. But he didn't stop there. Look at verses 5 and 6. He talks about how he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
See, the first, the first reason he's, he's personally seen the risen Christ, but the second is that many others had seen the risen Christ. In fact, all of the apostles personally saw Jesus. Now think about it. Twelve men, all of whom from that point on gave their entire lives to, to proclaiming one basic message that Jesus rose from the dead and that he fulfills all the Old Testament as a result, and he's the Messiah, that he can be trusted, so repent and trust him. That was their message. And pretty much every one of them was a martyr for that message. These were not, a few of them were related, but they, they were a, a, desperate, a disparate group of men that had come together only around their experience with this Jesus. And all of them, all of them swore that they actually saw Jesus and touched him and interacted with a bodily resurrected Jesus. Now, think about the possible explanations for that. I mean, sure, one of them could be that they're like, okay, this whole thing's, we've just given, wasted three years of our lives. Uh, we thought this was the real deal. Uh, quick, let's come up with something. Uh, you go steal the body, and we'll all go tell everybody that it was a resurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll say we saw this resurrection and this resurrection, and you know, build their case and then go out. If that were the case, there'd be, there'd be some hole, somebody along the way with the intense persecution that came w- would squeal and say, yeah, we made it up. Not one. All of them went to their graves suffering immensely because they knew that Jesus had actually risen. And, and I should just add at this point, of the many early theories circulating about what happened to Jesus' body, none of them deny that there at least was an empty tomb. So, I'm not talking about the Bible. I'm talking about other ancient documents that talk about Jesus and talk about... The, the, you, you have these recordings of debates between Jews and Christians. The Jews say, we know there was an empty tomb, but they come up with an explanation. Usually that somebody must have stolen away the body even though it was a sealed tomb of a rich Sanhedrin leader that was guarded by Roman guards. And they were never able to show the body to anybody. But that was their explanation. So everybody acknowledges something happened after this Jesus was put in a tomb and sealed and guarded by Romans that something happened that caused the body to be disappeared. In fact, of course it's empty because if it wasn't empty, neither the Jewish leaders nor the Roman leaders particularly liked the Christians. They were causing them a lot of trouble because they weren't worshiping their right gods or following the right religion. And so they could have just said, all right, we're going to show you the bones of Jesus. That settles it. They would have done that. If they had bones, they could have shown them. But they didn't. The tomb was empty. And there were eyewitnesses, not just the twelve apostles. Thousands saw him. Here, Paul tells us that on one specific occasion, over 500 people saw him. And he says most of them are still alive today. You see, after Saul had his experience with Jesus, he met a guy named Ananias who helped explain the Scriptures to him, process what had just happened. And then he had three years just studying the Scriptures on his own. And then he spent 
10 more years in Jerusalem talking to different people before he went and started proclaiming Christ. During that time, what do you think he was doing? Trying to figure out, okay, I've had this encounter. I've got to understand this. I've got to make sure I know what I believe. And he says, there, many of them are alive. I think it's because he had talked to them. He had heard a bunch of people, more than this number of people, who all at the same time saw the resurrected Jesus. That's not a hallucination, right? This many people don't have the same hallucination. It took more than a personal experience to turn Paul a skeptic. Paul was further convinced by the existence of so many eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. But there's a third reason that converged for Paul to cause him to believe in the resurrection. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Catch that phrase? In accordance with the Scriptures? Jesus' death and resurrection was in keeping with the Word of God written down long before Jesus appeared on the scene. So, so look at the facts that, Jesus is, that Paul is dealing with. There's a holy book that is widely regarded as given by God, the one God of the Jews, Yahweh. And in that one book, it says things like, To fix this broken world, I'm going to send a good forever king who will reign forever, who will actually be me, and it will be my son, and things like this. A forever king. But at the same time, it says to fix this broken world, I'm going to send somebody who will suffer and die for the sins of my people. Well, how can he be a suffer and die and yet reign forever? The answer to that riddle is the resurrection. Or it says things like uh, that, that this, this man, or the, that this sin and death are a byproduct of, of, the, of man's rebellion, and that, that the only way to fix it is to pay the penalty for sin. So it gives all sorts of images of how that penalty for sin has to get paid. And you know what has to get paid? Is through a death. But if it really does get paid, then it's not just sin that will be paid, but death will be conquered, based on what the Old Testament said, demanding, again, a resurrection. This is what God had said hundreds of years before Jesus came. And then along comes a man who fulfills in all sorts of ways what those scriptures say. And he says, I am the Messiah... And he says, I am going to die for the sins of my people. And I'm going to rise up. Those are the facts. And then we have all what we just talked about. An empty tomb. Eyewitnesses accounts. 
Paul's personal encounter. How do you put these facts together except for that there actually was a resurrection? Someone really did rise from the dead. That's the evidence. And for Paul, it was enough to compel him to do a complete 180. And I said at the beginning, I'm a skeptic. I don't always like that I'm wired that way. But for me, it has held my faith strong despite my skeptical nature. It's, it's a very significant part for me of why I know Christianity is true and I know these experiences that I have are valid. If you ever be interested to sit down and just talk to me over lunch, I'd love to share with you all the different things that God has provided in His Word. But what about for you? Maybe you're a Christian. But you have questions and doubts sometimes. Maybe because of your nature. Maybe because of things you've been through. Experiences you've had with a church. Or with someone who claimed to be a Christian. Or maybe just with the brokenness of this world. Maybe you're struggling silently, anonymously. Nobody even knows it. Or maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Christ. You like the idea of Christianity well enough, but it's just hard to swallow some of it. God has not asked us for blind faith. I was preparing my sermon and my eight-year-old daughter came in. She said, can I help? I said, sure, go ahead. She said, tell me a story about our family. She sat in on some of my sermons. I guess she thinks they're boring if I don't tell a story about our family. She, she recommended also that I tell a story about dinosaurs. I'm not going to do that. Um, so, I didn't write down the story about my family, and I'm blanking right now. There's my shout-out to my daughter. You can tell her I did. I failed her. He doesn't ask for blind faith. Oh, yeah, here's where I was going with that. <laughs> if you just look at your notes, you can figure it out. There was a, at our previous church, there was a VBS, and one of the songs was about faith. And the song says, By faith I believe there's a miracle around the bend. And the way it talks about faith in the song is just it's kind of like, you know, if I just believe it, it'll happen. Summon enough faith. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith isn't blind faith. That's what other religions ask for. You just have to believe that one man, Muhammad, went out and had these audible revelations from God that he wrote down. No one else heard. He wrote them all down. He made one holy book. And we all have to believe that. You just have to believe Joseph Smith went and some angel guided him to a hole in the ground where he dug out these golden plates. And yes, a couple members of his family and one of his best friends has seen these plates and signed that they'd seen it, but nobody else has ever seen it. There's no other proof of it. You just got to believe it. 
Not so the Bible. The Bible says, here I am. I'm going to, before it ever happens, I'm just going to lay out what I'm going to do. For, I'm going to take a thousand years and have different men write down what I'm going to do to save the world. So that all people for all time can look at it and see that I said it happened before it happened. It's open to anyone to investigate. And then I'm going to make the linchpin of my my rescue plan for the world, a physical bodily resurrection that happens under the Roman's nose, a Roman court or a Roman system that is for all time been trusted as a, a credible legal system. So that you can look and examine the facts. Go find the empty grave. He invites you to come and investigate, to examine. And as you look into it, I believe that you will find it is true. Jesus did rise. Which means there actually is hope for this broken world. It's not naivety. It's not a noble lie. It is a world-changing reality. Death is defeated, sin is forgiven, our labor is not in vain.